Good morning, everybody. Nice to see you here today. Um, This morning, as uh, we mentioned last week, we are starting a new uh, series. It's called The Story. And the story is a um, look at the Bible that we're going to journey through over more than 30 weeks this year. Sorry, more than 3-0, just uh, so you didn't hear me say, you know, 13 or whatever it is. Um, And it's going to challenge the way that we, we read the Bible a little bit. Because whether you're aware of it or not, when you read Scripture, you approach it in a particular way. Uh, maybe you're looking for an answer to something, uh, maybe you're looking for some sort of guidance or help, but we all approach Scripture from a particular way. Um, but one of the things we're going to talk about a great deal over the next 30 weeks is that the Bible is part, the Bible is one big story that God is wanting to tell. And so, um, I'm going to read to you a passage of scripture this morning that's going to help us reflect a little bit on how we read the Bible. So our scripture this morning comes from Mark chapter 16. If you want to open up there, you're welcome to. Mark chapter 16, starting in verse 12. Uh, This is a passage about after the resurrection of Jesus, once the empty tomb was found. And this is what Mark wrote. Mark chapter 16, verses 12 through 13. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Okay, so what is that story about? It could be about disbelief, sure. What else is it about? That Jesus was resurrected, certainly, and that he appeared to someone. Okay, that's probably, we can maybe pull a couple of things out here or there, but that's most likely what that story is about. And so that's the story that Mark tells. Okay, now turn over to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? 
And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They, then they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while, we talk, while he talked with us on the road and opened up the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Okay, what is that story about? It's about the same thing. Interestingly enough, what Mark said in two verses and roughly 25 words... Luke said in 22 verses and a good hundred or so more words than what, than what Mark used. But I think that this is reflective a little bit of how we can sometimes approach the story. Sometimes when we approach the story, all we're getting from it is the Mark version. This is what happened. Let's move on to the next thing. But something I want to invite you to consider this morning is that there may be a lot more to the story itself that we're missing based on how we're reading it. We have these two accounts, the one from Mark and the one from Luke. And the one from Luke draws out the story in such a different and more remarkable way. You get, you get the names of the people on the road. You get the conversation that Jesus had with them. And interestingly enough... What is one of the points that Jesus makes to them on the road? You have been reading scripture all your life. How is it that you have missed the story? We don't want to read scripture like that. And so as we go uh, through these next 30 weeks, we're going to uh, look at scripture in a different way. We're going to look for the big story. We're going to see how things tie together. So this morning, the question that I want you to consider is this. How do you read the Bible? What do you do when you open it up? What do you look for? What do you see? And are you open to God showing you something new? Uh, so as I mentioned both last week and earlier this morning, uh, we are starting today a program called The Story. Some of you have asked me uh, about it and what it is, and so I'm going to tell you uh, about it and what it is. Uh, the Story was created several years ago by uh, Max Lucado and Randy Frazee. There is a book. Uh, it looks a lot like a Bible because it sort of is. Um, and uh, you can order this from Amazon. You don't. You don't have to order it because, and I'll explain why in a second. Unless you would just, unless you would just like to do so. But what they basically did is they took the Bible, and again they're looking at it as a big story. And so they went uh, section by section and uh, took out uh, sort of all of the narrative points. So it's not every passage of the Bible. Okay, it's parts of it that are pulled out that help to tell the story. So, for example, uh, what we are covering today is the story of creation through the story of Noah. 
And uh, here in the book, <clears throat> that covers 11 pages. Okay, so it is condensed, and there are some things that are that are left out. We're going to talk about uh, why we do that here in a second. But if you would like to be able to uh, follow along with the passages that we are specifically looking at each week without necessarily having to go through and read um, all the chapters that are in the Bible, uh, this is what you can look for and pick up. Now, uh, Again, it's designed to take us through the story over 31 weeks. And I think uh, while the concept of, I said at least 30 weeks, is what I said. So I'm going to add a week each week. So this, last week I said 30, this week I'm saying 31, next week it may be 32. Just, <laughs> we're doing it till it's done. Let's put it that way. <clears throat> um the purpose is to help us look at the Bible story as this one big story, but it's going to require us, I think, to uh, read the Bible in a slightly different way, as I talked about this morning. Now, here's why. I, I think, and this is, a, this is a generalization, okay, but I think that when we typically read Scripture, we approach Scripture as uh, an instruction manual. So we are looking for wisdom, we're looking for guidance, we're looking for how to handle a situation, and we are always, 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 I think, looking at Scripture as, what am I supposed to learn from this? What are the things that I can take away? What am I supposed to take home from this passage? We view Scripture as kind of like a guide for life, and this, of course, um, is true about Scripture, it is a guide for our life, right? It, it does give us instruction and help us to understand what we should do in all kinds of situations. However, if we are totally accustomed to approaching Scripture as a guide or a manual or as instructions, this colors how we read it and what we're able to pull from it. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Look at it this way. You read... Uh, an instruction manual from the dresser that you're trying to put together from Ikea, right? Very differently than you read, let's say, a novel by John Grisham. Why? Well, one, you understand them to be two different things. And you wouldn't look for instructions for putting together a dresser in a John Grisham book. Probably not going to find them, Right? And you're not really looking for a story when you read the instruction manual, unless you read Swedish, which then you're, there may be a story there that you just never knew about from Ikea. But when we read the instruction manual, we are simply looking for one thing. What is the next thing that we have to do? And if you're a guy, you are trying to ignore the fact that an instruction manual is even necessary at all, which is why your IKEA dresser is slightly crooked and has three drawers instead of four. <laughs> so we approach the Bible a lot of times as an instruction manual, which means this, okay? We are not often looking for a story. We're not often looking for a story. We are looking for what it is that we are supposed to do next. What is the next step for me? 
And if we're completely honest with ourselves, we might even be a little bit uncomfortable calling the Bible a story. Right? Uh, And there are particular reasons why we might feel uncomfortable with that. One, we understand that the Bible is more than a story. Amen? Amen? And sometimes we may think that calling the Bible a story somehow cheapens what it actually is. After all, there's sort of this connotation that a story doesn't have to be true. And so to us, the Bible is not really a story. But there's an interesting question that, at least for me, sort of pops up from that, and that is this. Can it be a story and be completely informative as to what we should do as well? And the answer is yes. So my encouragement to you this morning is we can have it both ways. However, the muscles that we are going to try to use to see the Bible as a story are simply different muscles than the ones that we use if we approach it simply as an instruction manual. The thing is that the Bible is not only an instruction manual, but it is actually a narrative. It is filled with stories, wonderful stories, amazing stories. And all of those stories come together to form one big, consistent story. From creation all the way to the return of Jesus and the restoration of all things by the Father. If you think about it, the Bible story has crept into all different parts of our culture. For example, in sports, if a huge underdog is playing against the, repeat, the repeating champion of whatever it is, we say that this is a story just like David and Goliath. If there is a huge disaster or some sort of wreck or an event that just sort of blows our minds, we say it is an event of what? Biblical proportions, right? Because even within our culture... Whether people believe in God or not, we understand that the Bible tells these kinds of big stories, these amazing things, these things that are hard to explain any other way. And so, we are going to, over the next 38 weeks, (laughs) approach the Bible from a slightly different angle. So here are some things I want you to consider. Okay? The Bible is a story with characters. There are people that come, there are people that go, there are people who we see live their lives. The Bible also has a beginning, a middle, and an end. We talked about that a little bit last week. That there actually are distinct parts to the story. There are going to be things that happen in each section that will tell us about these characters and they are going to further what the story is about. And here's what I mean by that. I know that some of this sounds dumb and you're like, Bryce, why are you telling us this? Well, because if we're going to view it as a story, we have to start to view it as a story, which means that what we see happen in one part of it is going to lead into the next. If there is one big overarching story in this thing, right? 
then one part is going to lead into the next part of the story. And our task as we approach this story over these next several weeks is to recognize what is going on and to ask ourselves the question, how is the story moving forward? But most importantly, what is the story about? What is this? Not what's happening Not what are the details, and not what should I learn from this, but what is the story about? And so this morning, we are going to stretch ourselves a little bit, but it's a great way to do it. For one thing, we are covering an enormous section of scripture. We are going to be covering Genesis 1 through 9 this morning. This will take us from creation all the way through the aftermath of the flood and the covenant with Noah. Now, here's why it's such a great place for us to start. One, it's the beginning, right? And we got to get through the beginning. But it's a story that most of us are really pretty familiar with. Um, Even if someone didn't grow up going to church or hasn't read much of their Bible, they are sort of familiar with the idea of God creating uh, the earth and the story of Noah. And because there's so much that happens in this story... Uh, We have broken it down, dissected it, looked at it verse by verse, analyzed every part of it to make sure that we know what it's all about. But very rarely have we looked at it as a story that's being told to accomplish some specific things. In this case, however, it's a great example because these nine chapters of Genesis, okay, tell us everything we need to know about what the Bible is about. It's crazy, but it really does. The first nine chapters of Genesis tell us everything we need to know about the plot of the story. This is what it's about. It introduces the main characters. It introduces the main problem. It sets the rules and boundaries for how things will work. And it starts on a road to resolving the problem. All of that happens. In the first nine chapters of Genesis, there is so much to learn from that. Now, I know you're already thinking, how are we going to cover nine chapters in Genesis? And when you go home at five o'clock tonight, you will think that is how we did it. (laughs) You're already wishing that Bryce was more like Mark and less like Luke, right? It is going to require us to skip over some things. So uh, the one thing I want to keep you to keep in mind as we go is don't be frustrated if we skip over something that you think is important. It doesn't mean that we don't think it's important. Okay? But what it does mean is, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the thing that we are focusing on is just maybe a little bit broader than that one specific thing. Okay? Think you can do this? Yeah. All right. Then let's jump in. Open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 1. Now, in Genesis, uh, the first few chapters of Genesis here, all of the main characters of the story are introduced. Okay, I know that sounds like a weird thing to say, but it's true. All the main characters are introduced. So let's think about this for a second from a storytelling perspective. There are three main characters in the Bible. They are who? God. God. 
I know you all want to say Jesus. Jesus just sounds so right as the answer. Okay. God, mankind, and the tempter. The evil one, all those things. Now, I know what you're thinking. Let's get to this, okay? But Bryce, isn't Jesus a main character? Yes, Jesus is a main character. But the Bible tells us that Jesus is really an extension of who? God. By knowing Jesus, who do we know better? God. When we see Jesus, we are not seeing Jesus. We are seeing God. Okay? So, there are three main characters. There is God, there is mankind, and there is the tempter. Now, these first two characters, God and his relationship to mankind, is what the story is about. If you had to sum up the Bible in one brief statement, you would say the story is about God and his relationship to mankind. And the tempter is a main character because he affects the relationship, and that is important to the story. Now, it is also important for us to understand, because this if you think about this, and, and this is why we include the tempter in this list, the tempter is clearly the enemy. Okay, He is the antagonist. And that's important in any story, because if we are left with just God and mankind, and God is the protagonist, the hero of the story, then what is mankind? The villain. But that's not how the story is told. That's not how the story is told. You have the hero, which is God. You have this other main character, which is mankind. And then you have the villain, which is Satan. The tempter, the evil one, the devil, whatever you want to call him. So let's look at this story and find out what we learn about these characters. So the first character that we meet in the Bible is who? Is God, and that's fitting. Because he is the center of the whole story. So what we want to ask ourselves is this. What are we going to learn about God through this story that we are looking at today? So it starts out with what statement? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So what do we learn from this about God? Okay, we learned that there was nothing before God, but God existed. We learned that God has great power. We learned that God created all that there is. So even in this one statement, and we're going to see this play out, okay? But even in this one statement, God is revealed as the absolute power in creation. He is totally distinct from everything that is, and yet he is involved in it. And this is an important thing for us to note. The creation of all things by this God is not a haphazard exercise. We learn about God by the way that he creates. We learn about him by the things that he does. And we see that he creates carefully, meticulously, with great design, and with great love. He brings all things into being. And it also tells us, quite literally, that God is in control. 
He is what makes this happen. He is powerful, but he uses his powerful in an amazingly expressive way. And so he starts creating. He first creates light and dark. There we go. He creates the water and the skies, dry land and the seas, all the vegetation that nature has to offer, the sun, the moon, and the stars, the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and all the living creatures on land. And as it says here on the screen, how did he create these things? He spoke them into existence. Okay. He spoke. What does that action tell us about God? That he spoke these things into being. I mean, it's one thing to say that God is powerful. Yes? But how do, what do we compare the power of God to? Nothing. There is nothing we can compare it to because this God who was before all things is so powerful that he simply speaks and everything that exists comes to life. That's a big idea, right? It's a big idea. But it establishes who God is. And nature is not a collection of random, meaningless matter in motion. It instead is a carefully revealed picture of a loving God who is doing this on purpose. There is a meaning and a reason he is designing as he creates. And when he steps back each day and looks at what he created, his reflection is, it is good. What I am doing is good. He cannot help but be pleased with what he has done. All of that, that creation story, is about who? It's about God, and it sets up the environment for us for the story. It gives us a setting where this story is going to take place. You have God, and then you have this place that he has created. And so now we wonder, what is the story going to be about? And the next character that we meet is man, humanity. So what do we learn about man from what we see within the pages here? If you want to follow along with me, I'll be in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Um, I will be reading from the New King James Version, so it may sound a little bit different than what you are accustomed to. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, <clears throat> and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, what are the distinguishing characteristics of this character? <laughs> to be slightly redundant. What are the distinguishing characteristics? One, humanity is made what? In God's image. And the writer wants us to know not only was humanity made in God's image, but in God's image was humanity made. Right? They repeat it. 
God has a discussion, let's make humanity in our image, so he makes them in our image, and then in our in his image we are made. It's repeated that way so that we get a certain idea that this is the case. That humanity is different from everything else that has been spoken into existence so far. And so if in our minds we're sort of rating things on how important they are, at the top is who? At the bottom is what? The earth. And in the middle is man. They are more important than everything that God just spoke into existence. But they are still under who? And God gives man authority over all the earth. So humanity, which is made in God's image, occupies a unique role and position in this creation, a place of dignity and responsibility. It is made in the image of God. And because this is so, humanity can have a relationship with the Creator that is unlike anything else in creation. And Daphne already brought it up this morning. If you read in Genesis chapter 1, there is basically a listing of everything that is done. This was created, this was created, this was created. It was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. And man falls into that, although the passage we just read gives man distinction. But if you read Genesis chapter 2, it tells you that man was not spoken into creation. Instead, God forms man out of the clay, and then does something that he did not do with everything else. And we need to realize this as a plot point. God can create simply by speaking, but he does not do this in this case. Instead, he molds man out of the clay, and then he does what? Breathes his own breath into man. Breathes his own breath, and when he does this, man comes to life. If human life is ultimately the product of an unguided cause and effect chain reaction stretching back to the Big Bang, then comment, concepts like human rights and moral norms are just code words for what people think at the time. If, however, the creation story sets the stage for our existence, then we are the product of a powerful, creative God. We are not here by accident. And we ultimately are created specially to be in relationship with him. So man is special, but that is not all we learn about this character. It doesn't stop there because the story continues to develop what humanity is like. And we learn that while humanity was given gifts that nothing else in creation received, that humanity was also terribly flawed. That there is something wrong, and this is where the problem is introduced. Because humanity shows from the very beginning that though it was created to be in relationship with God, it struggled with the fact that God was God and that mankind had to answer to him. And this takes us to the heart of what these first nine chapters are really about. The heart of the story, which is what happens in this relationship between the all-powerful, almighty God and the people he created to be in relationship with him. We'll be reading from chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. 
Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, as they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. Now, we learned some interesting things, okay? They've been given an instruction, which was not to eat from this tree. Does it bother them to not eat from the tree? Not particularly. And what is the nature of their relationship with God? It is unhindered and unashamed. How can we say that? Because they're naked. That's why. They are as God made them. There is no barrier, not even a cotton one, between them and God. And so they are living in the garden in this state, and we are introduced to the third character, which is the tempter. And what does the tempter do? It's not a trick question. He tempts her, right? And the first thing that he does is he clouds her understanding of the issue. God said you can't eat from this. She doesn't seem to have much of a problem with it until he says, well, you misunderstand why it is that God doesn't want you to do this. You see, the real reason is that God doesn't want you to be like him. And if you eat this fruit, you're going to be like him. And all of a sudden, humanity is given a choice. Are you going to be under God or are you going to be like God? Now, here's the sad thing. It's not really a choice. One, they are already like God. And two, they will always be under God. But we learn something about the tempter, which is what? The tempter lies and distorts the truth so that the relationship between God and what he created can be distorted as well. And listen again to how she looks at the situation differently. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. All of a sudden, she's surrounded by trees and food. She does not need to eat from this tree to survive. But she comes to the conclusion 
that what? The food looks good. And all of a sudden, the tree is the best looking tree in the garden. And the tree of life is there. So I have a hard time believing it's the best looking tree in the garden. But all of a sudden it is. And then she adds to it, and look what it can give me. And she reaches up, and she takes the fruit, and she eats it. This one act by Adam and Eve, this rebellion against God's command, impacts the rest of the story. Everything changes at this point. And this is most greatly symbolized by the fact that once they know good and evil and God comes back to visit with them, what is the first thing they do? Is cover themselves up. The relationship has changed. They had rebelled and chosen to turn from the God that lovingly made them. And it's too early in the story... And based on what we know about everything, this rebellion can't simply be ignored. You've got the God and creator of all things. You've got the people he created to be in this loving relationship with him that have rejected him. And you've got this creature that lied to them to get them to do something else. It's a problem, right? It's a real problem. And it can't simply be disregarded. At some level, we all sense that something big is broken in our world. We understand what it feels like as we try to change something about ourselves and we find that we fail each time. What is wrong with our world? What's wrong with the people in it? What is wrong with everything that is going on? Why are things so out of joint? Why why does this kind of stuff keep happening? And the story gives us the answer. We read that things are the way they are because humans at the very beginning chose to live life on their own terms. And once humanity chose to live life on its own terms, they found themselves standing across from God instead of standing with God. So the question that stands in front of us then is how is God going to react to this? He finds that they have disregarded the one thing he's told them not to do, that they have listened to a liar instead of him, that their relationship is broken, so what will he do? Well, God responds with a series of curses, each which takes a good God-ordained thing, something that he gave them, and changes it into a form of heartache. Work is now toil, marriage a battle, children a painful ordeal. And it leads to a couple of things that are coming next, but that is not all that has happened. Because in verses 14 through 15, God, the Creator, speaks to the tempter. And this is what He said. Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
Now, this passage has been looked back at by several biblical writers. They refer back to this idea. But there is a dynamic that we now should clearly understand. God was on humanity's side. But the tempter is not. And forever, the tempter is working against humanity. No matter what it says, no matter what it does, no matter how he dresses it up, he is always working against humanity. He is always trying to strike the heel. However, what else is true? Man will be able to what? Crush his head. So even though the tempter will always be working against them and has been successful thus far, he will not always be successful. There will be victory. Which tells us something interesting along with everything else we see. We are given a hint that this God is not really done with his people. I mean, he's thinking out, even in this first proclamation, a long way. And he's not writing man off. God is clearly wronged. Man is clearly offended. God must act on this offense, but he does not close the door to his relationship with humanity. God is the creator of all things, could have closed the door. But he doesn't. In fact, he doesn't even destroy the two people who have broken his heart. It can't be the same. He puts them out of the garden. But he is also looking ahead. Because as crazy as it sounds, this God who has just seen that what he created doesn't quite love him back in the way he wants it to, wants to maintain this relationship with them. He wants to have something with them. It's changed, but it's not over by a long shot. Which takes us next to the story of Noah. So, God created, He loved, man rejected, they've moved out. What's going to happen next? Is there restoration possible? Can man now live in this new way and still have relationship with God? From chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man, whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. Okay, there's a shift, right? There's a pretty big shift. God, who kicked man out of the garden but is not done with them, comes to what conclusion? There is nothing good about what I have done. What did he say about creation when he spoke it into existence? It was all good. And now he looks back and what does he say? 
There is nothing good about this. The intents of his heart was only evil continually. And he was sorry that he had made man on earth because it grieved his heart. His heart was broken and he could not stand to see creation live this way. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Isn't that a crazy statement? It is such a crazy statement. I mean, look how derailed everything has become. By chapter what? Six of the entire Bible. There is nothing good, but God looks down and he sees Noah and Noah finds what? Grace in the eyes of God. Though we kick them out of the garden, he is not done with man or the earth. Though man has completely moved away from him, he is not done with them at that point either. He is so deeply invested in what he's done. He's so broken hearted by how things have turned out that he cannot end the whole thing and so he decides to start over with one man that showed any sort of connection to him. Noah finds grace. He was not perfect, understand. But he finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. And God, the character, thinks, maybe if we start over, maybe if we start over, this will be better. In the creation story, we saw the Lord separating light from darkness, the waters below from the waters below or, or above, and the land from the water. And in each case, God was refining his creation and crafting the perfect environment for what he had created. But after setting that stage, after seeing him fill it with life, after seeing that life move away from him, God reverses what he had done. The heavens rain down, the earth is covered in the waters of chaos. A world teeming with life becomes a global graveyard. Everything with the breath of life in its nostrils is destroyed. Except for Noah and his family and the animals that they have on the ark. It's a terrible scene. It's a terrible scene. We are used to a degree growing up with the flannel graph version of Noah and the Ark, right? Which focuses on two things, animals and rainbows. But there's a classical, a classic painting of Noah and the Ark, which shows the Ark in the water and people being swept away under the rush. It's awful. And this is the point that God and humanity had come to. Where God takes this kind of sweeping action in order to try to start over again. To try to change what it is that he created. Something that was good that became bad that maybe can become good again. But we cannot overlook the desperation of a God who looks at his creation and thinks this is the best answer. 
the amount of hurt and despair that God himself had, we know he felt. Picking it up in chapter 8. After uh, Noah has found dry land, starting in verse 15. Then God spoke to Noah saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may be so they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wives and his sons' wives with him. Every animal, every creeping thing, every bird and whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. And then moving on to the next chapter, verses 12 through 16. He makes a covenant with man. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. The rainbow shall be in the cloud and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. There are some important things that we need to see in these two passages. The first one is that God is incredibly grieved by what has happened. There is nothing about the story of Noah that God enjoys. Or that he arbitrarily decided. Or that he did without care. This was painful for God. But he had to bring judgment and his judgment was right. Why? Because what he has created was evil all the time. Evil all the time. And a good, loving, just God could not allow what he created to continue down that path. As God, he holds our future in his hands. He's the judge and we are accountable to him. And this story does tell us that no matter how far away man seems to have moved from the idea of God, we are still accountable to God. And that God will still judge But amazingly, that's, that's not what the story is totally about. It's what it should be about. But that's not what the story is totally about. Because God does something, I want you to understand this, God does something he did not have to do. He makes a covenant with creation. He makes a covenant with creation. 
the creator, sustainer, and lover of all that is. He promises to be forever in relationship with what he has made. To forever hold it up, to forever give it what it needs, and to forever love. And he promises that he will never act in such a way again. That it will never come to this again. That he will do everything within his power so that this never happens again. Because he cannot stand for it to happen again. He cannot go through this again. He will not go through it again. And as much as is within his power to rewrite what is happening, he will do it. But he needs to be God. And creation needs to be his. What will be done about this? The story continues. God's word invites us to consider the powerful connections between the world that God created our own disobedience in our ongoing relationship with God. And in these nine chapters, we see what the story is about. They reveal why things are the way that they are. God is above all, before all, over all things. He lovingly created the world He especially created man to be in relationship with him. Man was pulled away and disobeyed God. They were pulled by the one who is looking to deceive and change and alter the relationship between God and man. And though God must judge, he is looking for an open door. He's looking for an open door because God deeply desires for his relationship with with humanity to be restored. And though he is hurt, he promises he is going to work to this end. This is the introduction to the story of God. With these elements, we are going to see them pop up over and over and over again. These themes are going to repeat themselves. All that we've seen in these first few chapters. They materialize every day in our own lives as we attempt to walk with God and live as His special creation. We are a part of this story. Every moment we find ourselves in it. Living in a world that a loving God created. Being given the choice to turn from Him. And finding, even when we do, that the door is still open. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for this time this morning. Though the story starts in such a difficult and tragic way, God, we learn so much from the story that is told. For God, we know that it is true of us, that all that it says, all it communicates, describes us and who we are. But Father, we are thankful that you did not 
slam the door in our faces, but that you continue to invite us to be in relationship with you. So God, as we see ourselves in this story, may we understand that the door, the path, the road to you is always open and we can always choose to take it. And that that, Father, is the great desire of your heart. In the name of your Son, Jesus, who makes that possible, we pray this prayer. Amen. Next week, we will be covering Abraham through Isaac, not Abraham through Isaac. (laughs) And we'll look at how God attempts to create a nation. If you have any needs this morning uh, that we can help you with, you need prayer, you need encouragement, you want to know this God who loves you in this way, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song together.